What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening. You are listening to a Rattledge and Broadcasting premiere podcast TV party tonight. Also, happy Veterans Day slash Remembrance Day. I'm your host, the Mandator Reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Radlich, and this is our annual Veterans Day slash Remembrance Day show. And of course, joining me as he always does for our annual show is Andrew Graham. How do you do, sir? I do well, Mark. How do you do? Uh, every day is a winding road. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> so... Every year, um, because of your interest in history and the military and military history, we like to do something in honor of Veterans Day slash Remembrance Day, as it's known in Canada, as I've said. And I usually let you pick. Sometimes we do a movie to do an on-trial for. Sometimes we do a series. Um, I usually let you pick because I'm not a dictator. So, um, though at some point I would love to do some of the war movies that I haven't seen, like Hamburger Hill and whatnot, but, yeah, that's a, that's a conversation for another day. Um, in any case, you chose this year Medal of Honor, which is an anthology documentary series based on real-life combat events and personal sacrifices that ultimately led to being awarded the Medal of Honor. The series highlights Medal of Honor awards that are given both posthumously and in addition to awards given to recipients who are still alive today. Each episode recreates one person's experience pertaining to the story behind their Medal of Honor award. And there were eight episodes. Uh, why did you want to talk about this series? I just thought that this one was kind of a, a good example to talk about from from Veterans Day and you know Remembrance Day, as it's known here in Canada, Armistice Day in the in the UK. And it's you know it has an interesting cross section of stories about about you know these these in this case all men who served. Um, under some pretty harrowing circumstances, and, and to talk about those stories, which I found were compelling. I thought the, I thought the series overall was pretty well produced, and I think it it, it offers some interesting aspects. So, as I said, there are eight episodes. Uh, the eight men in question are Sylvester Antalak, Clint Romache, Edward Carter, Hiroshi Hershey Miyamura, Vito Bertolda, Joseph Vittori. Richard L. Etchberger and Ty M. Carter. 
We're going to start with Sylvester Antelok. The episode summary goes as follows. Pinned down by heavy enemy fire in a field near Cisterna, Italy in 1944, U.S. Army Sergeant Sylvester Antelok leads a charge that becomes legendary. So give us some background here. What all happened? So basically, as I understand it, so this is part of the... Um this is part of the um, kind of the the Anzio beachhead, which kind of as as larger ideas of the Second World War happened. Um, basically, um, by you know the early by about you know nineteen forty uh, nineteen forty two nineteen forty three, um, things had more or less been wrapped up in North Africa. The uh, the Allies were not quite ready to invade. The Americans had just entered the war. They're, uh, they were still looking for opportunities to try and affect uh, mainland Europe. They weren't ready for a, a main uh, you know, invasion over the channel against Fortress Europe. And uh, they were also getting pressure from their Soviet allies to try and relieve some of their heavy fighting that was going on with the Germans. And Winston Churchill, in all of his, uh, his wisdom, I mean, he's, he's, Winston Churchill is a very good reason that um, a former chief of the defense staff of Canada had the saying that a leader's job is to protect their followers from good ideas. <laughs> and Churchill had a good idea. He said, why don't we attack the quote-unquote soft underbelly of Europe, which was Italy. Now, sure, it kind of looks that way, and it's relatively a short trip from Italy up through Austria and into Germany, except until you look at the terrain and Italy's terrain and particularly in the north but all throughout is pretty treacherous it's yeah, mountainous say, you gotta it's get over the Alps right yeah, yeah to go between Austria and Italy there is actually like there's a tunnel through the Alps now but even at this time you had mountain passes you had to go through and Italy itself is pretty hilly it's also very narrow it's very hot it's very dry the towns are incredibly close and um and basically, for uh, because of all that, it, it created an area where you can really tie down a lot of forces really quickly. Now, at the end of the day, were there arguments to be said that yeah, you also ended up tying down a couple of German arm armies, especially after after the Italian fascists surrendered. Sure, but it was it was pretty brutal fighting. And in the case here, this is part of the breakout from the Anzio beachhead, which was a, if I recall correctly, basically uh, what had happened was this was a, a secondary front they had tried to uh tried to open up to try and advance the uh advance the progress of things in italy but what it ended up happening was that the um basically the allies got trapped in a beachhead and i think if i remember the citation in the in the episode correctly they were losing like 800 men per day basically just to the amount of amount of fire that was being poured on them and How basically what happened normandy and the amount of Sorry? people being how did the losses storming the beach compared to Normandy? Um, I don't know if it was the initial... That's a good question. I don't have that in front of me right now. The thing is, with Anzio, I mean, Norm Normandy, you definitely had heavy um, heavy casualties on the first day. I'm going to look this up right now. Um, and then you also had this immediate breakout where, I mean, we're still encountering pretty heavy casualties, but... Um, but you're at least making progress. With Anzio, they were stuck in this beachhead for a significant amount of time, and then what Sylvester Antelak's um, squad was involved in was actually breaking out from, from that beachhead, trying to take this key town that would allow them to, to use the military parlance, roll up the German line, and then actually proceed outside of the, outside of the area. Yeah, the ultimate goal was to get to Rome, yes? 
Yeah, exactly. But you had to break out of this beachhead first, because otherwise you were just going to be stuck there. Sure. Um, I think, yeah, so to put things in perspective, like day one of what I'm seeing here of Normandy landings, casualties were about 4,400 dead. So Normandy was much worse, but mind you, that was also an invasion of 100,000 plus men. Mm-hmm. Sure. So it's all relative. Exactly, exactly. It's all to scale and time and and as, as callous as it seems, because you're moving forward and because you're taking ground, it seems more justified in some cases. And it, it's a horrid way to, to equate human life, but that's somehow the way it's perceived. Um, so what specifically did Sylvester Antelok do that got him the Medal of Honor? Um, if I recall the episode correctly, basically he was leading his squad in, in a part of the breakout to try and get to this town, Cisterna, and during that time he basically, um, they were doing a, a bit of a, a recon and, and part of his, I think he may have been at a, a platoon-sized unit, so that's about 50 guys, give or take, and one of his squads that went out had basically been pinned down by a um, German machine gun section, or squad, whatever you want to call it, that was about um, about that uh, was hidden and had pinned that initial group. And what he had ended up doing was, first thing he did, he broke out of cover and basically started running directly at the um, at the German position, firing at it at the same time. And during that time, he actually, I believe, was shot at least three or four times. Went down, got back up, continued to run at it killed several Germans and took the last two or three basically um, prisoner one-armed because this other one had ceased to function because of the number of rounds that it had taken. So um, he had taken that, they had secured the area. They then turned around, had noted that um, that uh, and after a while they'd actually been counterattacked again by another group of Germans to which he then did the same thing got up, then then led a counter to the counterattack, and was killed in action at that time. I'm just going to read this last line of his Medal of Honor citation, which is on the Wikipedia page for his name. By his supreme sacrifice, superb fighting courage, and heroic devotion to the attack, Sergeant Antelok was directly responsible for eliminating 20 Germans, capturing an enemy machine gun, and clearing the path for his company to advance. So what did you think of the episode overall? I think the I mean the epi- I think this episode, you know, kind of serves as a template for what you're going to see in the rest of the series. I thought the um I thought it was shot well. I thought a lot of the commentary coming in from some of the uh some of the people who were speaking was very good. I mean, I think if I remember right they had like David Petraeus speaking and um I can't remember the other gentleman's name, but he was also a, a Medal of Honor recipient from the Iraq War. They have a number of historians comment on this and and you know, you start to get into a lot of the themes of this series in terms of sacrifice, bravery, service, um, comradeship's always a big one, leadership's a big one. I'd say with with a couple of exceptions, the guys they kind of highlight in this in this series are guys who are leaders. So I mean, like Antelope definitely is, uh, Clint Ramache, Edward Carter, um, I think, uh, yeah, Vittori was, Ectberger, like, a, at least half of these guys were were definitely what contributed to their behavior was the fact they were in leadership positions and responsible for the lives of their men. The next episode 
refers to Clint Romashea, of which a book you just read. What was the name of the book? So his book was called Red Platoon, and um, and he's actually so right now what's associated with him. This is the um, oh now I'm going to forget the name of the battle, the exact name of the battle that he was in. He he did receive the um, pardon me, he did receive the Medal of Honor for action in Afghanistan. And sorry, mm-hmm. it was the Battle of Battle of Kamdesh. Okay. Let me so, quick give a summary here. Outgunned and outmanned during an attack on a remote Afghanistan outpost in 2009, U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Clint Romashat leads an improbable defense. So this I I actually remember quite a number, quite a lot of detail, only because they go back to this one base a lot, and apparently this base kept getting attacked like constantly. <laughs> it's um. It's this, it's called uh, Cobb Keating, and it's in this remote part of Afghanistan, and it's a target for insurgents to keep coming after it. Uh, and so this is not going to be the first time the group there is going to have to defend itself from enemy attacks on all sides. But apparently it served a big purpose in that particular campaign. Do you remember why they insisted on having this base where they had it in Afghanistan. So this was this was in an area called Nuristan, which is in the kind of the, the mountainous areas of, of, of kind of northern Afghanistan. And basically the theory behind this was was to go out and start setting up these combat bat, uh, combat outposts and then also this had uh, another smaller base called just an opera uh, a uh, a you know an uh, observation outpost or just an OP, and the whole idea of this was to try and get out to some of these areas, try and establish a U.S. or Allied presence, try and you know do some do some of the engagement with the locals, try and try and build um, good relationships there, start to build some infrastructure, and try and get them built over with uh, try and get them in good with locals and try and dissuade them basically from fighting for the Taliban, gather intelligence on the Taliban and where possible fight the Taliban. Now this this is a pretty well-known thing. I think a lot of probably the other source that I would point a lot of people to for kind of a similar situation would be a uh, a documentary called um uh a documentary called Restrepo, which is about a very similar combat outpost and I mean these outposts I think I've seen that. It's it's really good and and read the uh the the companion book called by Sebastian Younger called War. That's an excellent book in terms of um, in terms of um, in terms of basically how uh, you know how how war functions, how it affects human beings. It, it talks about a lot more detail around these sorts of operations and and how it works. Now, op- Op Restrepo was built halfway up a mountain, so you basically didn't have a lot to worry about there. You definitely had to worry about up the mountain, but it was a lot better situated than Cop Keating, which was quite literally at the bottom of three mountains. It was elevated, you were elevated on each side, and you could literally see into um, into the base pretty easily. I think they they show that in in this episode, and they definitely have that as a scene in the movie The Outpost, which I've seen, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail here, but I'll say it's pretty excellent. Go give that a watch if you're kind of interested more in this story. It, it's... Uh, there's a if you've seen this episode and you've seen that movie, you'll see a lot of duplication between the two. But I will I will thoroughly recommend that movie. Um, 
But literally one of those scenes is they're going out on patrol trying to just kind of police around their area. And they're up there and they're literally looking down on the, um, on the, uh, you know, down on their own outpost. And they're basically theorizing how the Taliban would try and attack it. Okay. So, um, Clinton Romache, uh, going to read part of this here. Um, on the m- morning of the attack, S- Sergeant Romashe and his comrades awakened to an attack by an estimated 300 enemy fighters occupying the high ground on all four sides of the complex, employing concentrated fire from uh, recoilless rifles, rocket-propelled grenades, anti-aircraft machine guns, mortars, and small arms fire. Staff Sergeant Romache moved uncovered under intense enemy fire to conduct a reconnaissance of the battlefield and seek reinforcements from the barracks before returning to action with the support of an assistant gunner. Staff Sergeant Romache took out an enemy machine gun team, and while engaging a second, the generator he was using for cover was struck by a rocket-propelled grenade, inflicting him with shrapnel wounds. Undeterred by his injury, Staff Sergeant Romache continued to fight, and upon the arrival of another soldier to aid him and the assistant gunner, he again rushed through the exposed avenue to assemble additional soldiers. Staff Sergeant Romache then mobilized a five-man team and returned to the fight equipped with a sniper rifle. With complete disregard for his own safety, Staff Sergeant Romache continually exposed himself to heavy enemy fire as he moved confidently about the battlefield, engaging and destroying multiple enemy targets, including three Taliban fighters who had breached the combat outpost perimeter. While orchestrating a successful plan to secure and reinforce key points of the battlefield, Staff Sergeant Romache maintained radio communication with the Tactical Operations Center. As the enemy forces attacked with even greater ferocity, unleashing a barrage of rocket-propelled grenades and recoilless rifle rounds, Staff Sergeant Romache identified the point of attack and directed air support to destroy over 30 enemy fighters. After receiving reports that seriously injured soldiers were were at a distant battle position, Staff Sergeant Romache and his team provided covering fire to allow the injured soldiers to safely reach the aid station. Upon receipt of orders to proceed to the next objective, his team pushed forward 100 meters under overwhelming enemy fire to recover and prevent the enemy fighters from taking the bodies of their fallen comrades. So, pretty big deal here. He um, he did and not wilt under fire. this went on for fire. 12 hours. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you think about the stress and the trauma people go through in a battle. First of all, you know, it's it's not like in the video games and it's it's not like, you know, in like paintball. You really don't know where a lot of the fire is coming from. It goes on for these battles can go on for hours, 12 hours, 16 hours, you know. Um and you, you know, you, you have to think fast, and that's one of the things he did was make sure that he got air support. Um, what else did you want to say about Mr. Romache? I mean, this was this one, this one's kind of an interesting case in the series between between him and, and Ty Carter, who was also involved in the Battle of Kamdesh. I'd say one of the key things here about Romache is that this one was very much as much as you describe this about in terms of bravery and valor and things like this, this is very much a, uh, a show of absolute professionalism. This was about professionalism, control your situation. He knew his men really well. He knew his base really well. And he was able to take those things into account and, and kind of work his way through that. 
in his own book, like I said, I'd had a chance to read that, and it's called Red Platoon. He said that he kind of had a little bit of a knack for for dealing with these sorts of situations, and this was this was his particular strength, and it came in well on that day. He was able to to you know to use the vernacular, adapt and overcome throughout this entire situation. Like I said, this battle went on for twelve hours. So I mean, even if you watch you know this episode for one hour, probably of which twenty minutes of it is combat scenes, or you watch the outpost, that's you know about two hours long and about an hour of that's Think about doing that for the full 12 hours and having to, you know, think about not only your tactics, but looking after your guys, making sure that they're okay. Because most of the casualties that happened in this battle happened within about the first, I'd say, two hours or so tops. So any of the fatalities happened within the first two hours, and it was a matter of kind of holding the line for that amount. And and I don't... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't think either the either this episode or or the movie really do any justice to how heavy this fight was. Like it was it was by the skin of your teeth with full air support for 12 hours. That's how much fire the Taliban were dropping down. They brought three quad-mounted 50-caliber machine gun trucks to basically try and take Andy or, like, this was, you know, the, the tagline for the movie was that it was the most decorated battle in, Afghan, in the Afghanistan war, and they weren't kidding. There were <laughs> Air Force crosses, there were Silver Stars, there were two Medal of Honors. It was amazing how, how fierce this fighting was. There's no better way to say it. It was, it was very close, and like I said, in this case... I think what what Clint Ramachade showed here was like an you know an absolute level of competency and absolute level of professionalism in in executing his duties and and looking after his guys. Episode three focuses on Edward Carter, relegated to the rank of private doing due to institutional racism in World War II. Experienced soldier Edward Carter single-handedly cripples an enemy stronghold. So this one's a little bit different than the rest of these. This one talks about the um, segregated army in World War II. So if you were drafted into World War II or you enlisted as a black person, you could be a cook, you could be support. You were not fighting with white soldiers, at least not in the beginning. We eventually lost enough soldiers that they gave up on that. But um, you, you know, no, no black person was going to give white people orders. That's just the way it was. Um, so you have a decorated black soldier in Edward Carter who is reduced to the rank of private so that he can fight on the front line. And if I remember correctly, this is the one where he like charges into an enemy uh, encampment and 
like I don't know if it was single handedly. I think he had some people with him, but he caused a lot of destruction within led the way for the army to be able to move forward in much the same way Sylvester Antelok did. Um what are some of the details of this that I'm missing? So I think, as I kind of understand it, and I mean, I'm, I'm going to go... So this happened um, definitely later in the war. Let me see if I can actually find the citation here of where it was. So this is in the middle of Germany. It was March 1945. So, I mean, we're talking a literal matter matter of weeks before the um, before the end of the war here, because that ended at the uh, the end of April, or at least in the, in the West... Um, so yeah, as it was described, he took his uh, he took his his squad out on a on kind of a Ford Ford patrol after a after a in a recon after a, a tank in his unit had been hit. Um, his group was attacked by a German emplacement, and uh, and then he charged forward, basically attacking the German outpost. Um, was hit several times. Was able to neutralize that uh, that German emplacement. Then was set upon by a second group of Germans, probably about an eight-man section. Ended up killing six of them, took uh, took two of them prisoner, and then basically had escorted them back to his line, using them as human shields against the other Germans. And while he was doing this, because this gentleman spoke German, also interrogated them and got additional intelligence that he passed back to his unit. So. I mean, it's 2020, and you're not racist, so I can't imagine you're going to say anything really, uh, you know, earth-shattering here. But what did you think of, you know, it's the 1940s. The Civil War has been over for quite some time, but the United States is still going through a lot of growing pains and is still wrestling and struggling with its race relations. What did you think of the treatment of black soldiers and specifically reducing this guy's rank just so he can fight on the front line? Well, I mean, I think it... Um, well, you're hitting something that I normally don't, don't talk about, so <laughs> it... Um, <laughs> like I, I said, I don't think I you're going to be like, fuck the black people. I'm sure you're. I'm sure <laughs> one of the things you're thinking is, well, it was rotten. Oh, yeah, I think that's a pretty good way of saying it. I mean, I, I don't think... I don't think in a lot of cases that the U.S. was unique at this time. Like going back to World War One, we like our in Canada, our uh, what was it? Our kind of black unit was the Second Construction Battalion. So in a lot of cases, like you know, African Americans or African Canadians were were relegated to non-combat duties. It was still definitely you know segregated segregated armed forces. Um, and I mean, I think you know, I think one of the most interesting elements of this of his story is the way that, you know, I think it was Clinton had kind of initiated a secondary review among the, around the 50th anniversary of the, the Second World War events to actually go back and have a look at, you know, the actions of, of African-American soldiers who, if they were white, probably would have very easily qualified for, for something like the, um, the Medal of Honor. And I think they even mentioned that his unit commander said, I would have put him in for a Medal of Honor, but I know he would have been rejected, so I put him in for a Distinguished Service Cross instead. And I mean, I think that's that's something that you you talk about and and going into a little bit of history around the Medal of Honor itself, it definitely has had varying levels of of criteria to meet it. And there's been controversies around that, and there's been reevaluation. So you know, for example. Um, you know, we had this conversation later on in the series with um, 
with uh, Richard Etchberger, where because of the nature of his operation, it, it was then later upgraded to a Medal of Honor. And you've had cases where I think there was some ridiculous num number of Medal of Honors given out for the Battle of Wounded Knee, which really wasn't a battle, it was a massacre, and there's been some discussion on saying, should those be reversed posthumously because they really weren't earned? Putting quotation marks around that. So I think it's, I think it's a, you know, I think, you know, the story of this gentleman is very compelling. I think, I think, you know, the story of, of his family and the way that, that his legacy has affected them, I think was, was very compelling and, and what it means for him to have had that medal of honor. But I think it also talks about the, the nature of the medal in terms of, of, you know, it's not an absolute thing every time. Elvis Hodge is the most well-known actor uh, in the series as part of the reenactments. Uh, I rather enjoyed him in this. I thought he did a good job. What did you think of Elvis? You know what? I, I, uh, I'm i now looking at him, and, yeah, he's got quite a decent... Um, he's got a pretty significant filmography. I thoroughly enjoyed him in this, and, I mean, i got to say, just for in general, I thought the the level of acting and the level of craft was really good. Um, this was actually going to be my one episode that I was going to pick on for, for what I'm going to call the, uh, the Southern California effect, where it becomes really, really clear they shot all of this in Southern California because Germany does not look like that. <laughs> okay. They, they do a good job of kind of hiding it in other places. Like, you can kind of get away with that in, like, Afghanistan when you're really hilly, or, you know, if you, if you shoot it at night, then, okay, it looks like the hills in Korea... And and I think you can maybe get away with that for parts of Italy, but yeah, Germany does not look like the place where they shot this. Okay. Well, I mean, I don't think they had a huge budget, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, and if they didn't, then you know what? I'd still say they got they got the best out of it they could. <laughs> mm -hmm. So our next one is probably my favorite episode. Uh, this is Hiroshi Hershey Miyamura. Resorting to hand-to-hand -hand combat, Hershey Miyamura covers the retreat his, uh, of his men as waves of Chinese soldiers overrun his position in the Korean War. What I like about this episode is it deals with the treatment of Japanese people post-World War II uh, in the country. You know, you have... The, the, the Japanese country attacked Pearl Harbor and was part of the Axis powers, and we spent... Uh, money and treasure killing Japanese people in Japan and over the Pacific. These are irrefutable facts. Um, just watch any of the Bugs Bunny cartoons at the time to see how in order, you know, we, we tended to dehumanize the Japanese as we did the Germans, um, but definitely the Japanese. Um, they were drawn as caricatures. People really struggled and wrestled with the concept of Japanese people. And and I don't know how much of this you can speak to, what your knowledge of it is, but, you know, the United States has definitely had some fascistic, fascistic moments, which is why I, and I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but I laugh at people who get emotional about the election of Donald Trump, you know, and they're like, and like oh, it's the rise of fascism. I'm like, what? Tell me where the internment camps are, because we've had those. We put Japanese people in them. And Hiroshi Miyamura, by the skin of his teeth, barely missed being put in an internment camp, him and his family. 
Um, this country, you know, its presidents have definitely Andrew. I, I remember you and Robert Winfrey during the election podcast talked about Andrew Jackson, who came pretty close to being a dictator, um, as well as I think uh, not Winston Churchill, um, Woodrow Wilson, um, who's also a terrible racist, and. So, here's a guy born in America and proud to be an American and living the American life and having to live in a world where people are suspicious of him and his family and his race because of something that happened entirely out of his control by people on the other side of the world. It, it broke my heart to watch and to see him as committed as he was to the service and his family and to see the acts of uh, heroism, which I'll let you speak to in just a moment, uh, in the Korean War and how he was celebrated after made my heart sing. I loved it. I, I think this is the best episode. Uh, yeah, I mean, Mark, no one, I, I don't think there's anyone who, who wasn't guilty of that sort of thing. I mean, Canada definitely did Japanese internment as well, primarily on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. Um that happened as well, and uh, you know, I, I thought it was quite affecting the way they talked about it. Um, I mean, if you want to get into some of the ways, I mean, going back to the First World War, there were there were quote unquote em enemy alien internments of Japanese and and uh, and and Italian Canadians in some cases because of kind of the similar similar elements. The other thing that happened, and, and I think I'm just going to bring this in just because we'll all get a laugh out of it, but I mean. Do you remember, I mean, I think we all remember, you know, 2003 when, when French fries were renamed Freedom Fries. Ugh, yes, I remember. Well, in the First World War, uh, sauerkraut got renamed Freedom Cabbage. <laughs> yeah, New nice. Berlin got, New Berlin, Ontario instead got renamed as Kitchener because that was the name of, of one of the high-ranking British officers. I think... I think, sadly, both in terms of of kind of the direct action of of war, and then also on the home front, dehumanizing the other side is is entirely common. I mean, again, I'm going to cite something from the First World War. If you look at the way the Germans were portrayed there, they were they were made out as, you know, the Huns, the hulking beasts, things like that. So it's it's not uncommon. And I mean. I think not, um, it's not natural to kill your fellow man. And, yeah. you know, one of the ways we are inspired to do so is by making your fellow man look like an animal, look like a beast, you know, look like a mortal threat. You know, it's why I kind of laugh at sort of our modern um our, our our modern ways of doing things. You know, we had a conversation in the chat earlier today about the group that got offended by the witches because Anne Hathaway had three fingers or something like that. And it's like how far we've come from what was a natural order and way of doing things. You know, my, here's my thing, and I've been saying this since, you know, since the uh, war in Afghanistan in the early 2000s, since 9-11. War is a necessary evil, and it's not something I, I want us to do, but if we're going to do it, then, you know, you need to understand that war means killing people. And these are not your friends. Yeah. You know, and, and, I, and I think that, I, you know, I remember George W. Bush um, at the time going, we're trying to win hearts and minds. How about you? How about you? 
you control supply lines. That's a much better idea. You know, cause yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, I mean, there you, you is, feel free to, you know, contradict, you know, not contradict, but feel free to argue if you're like, yeah, I don't know if I, if I go along with that. Oh, no, no, that makes sense. I mean, there's, there's elements of, there's elements of both. And I think particularly in the modern wars that we've seen that you need to walk that fine line. Mm-hmm. Because I think on the one hand, you have to be able to, you have to be able to, you know, engage with and kill the enemy as efficiently as possible. Right. Because Without hesitation. that's the nature of war and that's what you need. Right. On the flip side of it, you've also seen what happens when you start to, and again, particularly when you're in a non, we'll call it kind of a, an unconventional or a, you know, an unconventional war like in Iraq and Afghanistan, they don't really deal with this in the series because you're dealing strictly with kind of combat areas you know you can't let that pendulum swing too far the other way where everything becomes a target everyone who looks like the enemy is an enemy because then that's how you get into alienating the population and not achieving your objectives and and creating some fairly horrible situations like to you know cite the vietnam example my lay sure and and i absolutely understand that um how do you know it, it's it's difficult when you want to preserve the citizenry and the infrastructure, but you still have to kill the enemy, and sometimes the twins meet, and it's yeah, and, and, sometimes, and sometimes they change daily. Yeah, well, I remember you know in Vietnam you had children running up to the soldiers and giving them what was it like glass in the candy or like poison candy or stuff like that like they were utilizing children and women to hurt to um do you know indirect damage to american soldiers in vietnam and this sort of thing happened in iraq as well where you had children who you know were a part were part and parcel of indirect attacks on american soldiers and like yes. you don't want to kill even- a kid but unfortunately, oh. you don't know if you can trust them either. Exactly. And I mean, even even like I said, going back to kind of modern kind of things I've heard from Afghanistan and Iraq is that, you know, literally the 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 alliances are, are as fickle as day to day. Sure. And it, it depends on who you're dealing with and when and how good or how bad their crop was. And I wouldn't even be surprised if it depended on which officer they were dealing with, because one guy was nicer than the other one. I remember reading more Bush at War trust- by Bob Woodward and them talking about the CIA on the ground in the early days of Afghanistan and um, them paying the local warlords in tens of thousands of dollars. And at one point they said, could you please pay us in smaller money? <laughs> we, <laughs> um we we this this is highly inflated. All right, so tell me, uh, tell the audience what exactly did Hiroshi do, besides be a valiant hero? So this is um this is actually kind of a good example, and again the the you know another example comes up in this series of what some of the nature of of kind of the character of the war in Korea was, which was after the after kind of the initial year or so, and and I'm gonna pardon myself, I'm definitely not an expert in the Korean War. So after the Chinese had entered, basically the the lines had more or less sort of stabilized to one degree or another. 
but on several occasions, the, the, the communist forces, be they either North Koreans or Chinese, tried to dislodge the, the we'll call them the allied forces for the sake of argument, from the, these various hilltop positions. And this was, this was a not uncommon occurrence in Korea. To, to bring in my, my Canadian factoid of the day, for those of you keeping track of, um, of the scorecard at home, uh, specifically one that comes to mind in Canada is what's called the Battle of Kapyong. And that involved 2nd Battalion, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, where I think one company had, uh, or at least the battalion had, had held off a very significant Chinese charge. And what ended up happening is that actually that unit to this day actually carries the streamer of a U.S. presidential unit citation for their actions during that battle. Hmm. In any case, speaking to, um, to Hershey, so basically, they had come into another one of these situations where they were holding part of a mountain. They had a, a mass attack come on. Basically, several of the positions were overwhelmed. He actually ended up kind of doing multiple man management of multiple situations where he was running between gun emplacements. He was actually dealing with some of the... Uh, he was actually having to engage hand-to-hand -hand, um, with several of these... Um, several of the, the enemy forces... He rendered first aid and basically covered his remaining uh, squad's escape where he stayed on the machine gun and was subsequently taken prisoner. Yeah, and I remember them talking about the POWs in the Korean War camps and they were like emaciated and it was a really nasty situation. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I'm like I said, I'm not as familiar as with what those conditions were. I mean, you know, if you... Probably the ones you really think about are the, the Japanese POW camps during the Second World War, which were horrid conditions. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And it sounds like these weren't a lot better. What, I, I mean, what I I'm actually reminded of is the Vietnam prisoner of war camps. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of this, you know, I've seen in like Rambo movies and stuff. So I understand there's a degree of fiction here. But, but this has to be based in some degree of reality. You know, they were they were like just human cattle, and they were shoved into these uh, you know bamboo structures, and barely kept alive. Yeah, um, I think what did they they cited actually what his weight was coming out, and he was under a hundred pounds. Yeah, it was like eighty some odd pounds. Yeah, exactly. Well, another interesting thing here, I'm just reading in the Wikipedia article that I don't know if that it, this had been mentioned in the. Um, in the episode, but they actually made a point of classifying his Medal of Honor top secret after he'd been taken as a prisoner, 
because they had actually feared that if they had made it public, they, they, uh, the, the North Koreans or the Chinese would have taken reprisals against them. Mm. He got the Medal of Honor while he was in a POW camp? I think he was... Um, I think it, it, it was basically kind of decided, and then he was rewarded it after he, uh, after he came back. Okay. Huh. What did you think of the episode overall? Overall, I enjoyed it. I think it was. I think it was good. I think it was. You know, this was one of the cases where you actually had, you know, the gentleman still alive to talk about it, and a lot of his squad mates still alive, and, and I think you had some good context of the history. I, I quite enjoyed this one. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the American melting pot. I love it when people come to this country from you know various and far off places, you know, and and I've heard this from other uh, cultures like you're in America now, speak English. Um, that's not, and that's not a comment on, like, people who maintain their own language. That's coming from the people who live, who, who moved here. So you yeah. have immigrants saying to their children, "We're in America now," and this this comes out of, like the '40s and '50s, I think. Um, it's long, <laughs> probably long since uh, a retired notion, but you know, there were at one point people who came from Europe and came from other places and were like, this is our home now. We want to fit in. We want to make this our home. We want to integrate. We want to melt. And he melted. He, he, is, the, he is a perfect example of the American melting pot. And I think that's what touched me. Other than his oh, heroism. Yeah. And I, I'd forgotten now that I'm just rereading back on the episode a little bit here. I also like the, the touching bit at the end where we also find a, his granddaughters in the U.S. Air Force. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. The next one is Captain America. Vito Bertoldo declared F4 due to poor eyesight. Vito later joins the U.S. Army anyway and ends up halting an enemy advance alone at the front lines. Yeah, he goes. He ends up uh, manning a. Uh, what is it? Um, I think it was a BAR, a Browning assault rifle. Yeah. And then uh, he ends up moving into a building and firing out a window. And he is being he is facing off against eight millimeter machine guns, small almost fire, um, and they are advancing on him. Uh, I think there's also he's also there was also tank fire that was yeah. Uh, and you know, and well, then the... he he just stayed in this building and shot back at, at these sold at these. Uh, advancing soldiers um what else happened andrew i mean that was kind of i think you know this one was was kind of a shocking start to it where um you know specific to his action um again this was pretty late in the war this is january of of 1945 and actually was in france which let me uh jump in here so people don't understand why i called him captain america as the summary said he was initially declared unfit for service but it's amazing how fit you can be for service when they start running out of bodies. So eventually he's able to join the army. But like, like somebody actually referred to him as Captain America in the show. Um, <laughs> you know, he was just a skinny little thing with poor eyesight. And despite his handicaps and setbacks and limitations, he was able to fight off this advancing German attack with a machine gun in a building. Yeah, and this is this is this is kind of part of the um, 
This is Operation Norwin. So this was another German offensive, which was kind of uh, another example to push the Allies back after the um, after the, uh, the Battle of the Bulge failed. This is in an area of France called uh, Alsace, which actually is coincidentally where actually my wife's family's from, except they were from there when it was German. <laughs> um, but anyway, so as I recall, what ended up happening was that his squad had encountered a group of, of quote-unquote surrendering Germans who didn't actually surrender and actually shot all the American troops. He then basically grabbed whatever he could and basically just started to to defend his position for as long as he could hold out. And, and as you said, there was infantry, there was tanks, there were... Um, 88 millimeter guns, which was kind of the 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 mainstay German um, field piece for the war. Basically, it was a anti aircraft gun that was meant to reach up 10,000 feet, and then the Germans figured out if you pointed it at a tank, it will kill a tank pretty well. So that was probably one of the the worst weapons that they could have brought to bear during the entire war. Um, so this was kind of a fun episode. Just you know, the idea of the unlikely soldier uh, valiantly fighting off an army of uh, enemy combatants and barely making at, making it out alive. What did oh, you yeah. think of the episode? I thought it was pretty good. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I think probably even, even going back and talking about these again, I definitely find that this, ep- this entire show had a definite rhythm to it where it's like, you know, action starts in Media Reyes... You have a little bit of background on what happened. You tell the story about what happened, you know, what he did to earn the Medal of Honor. You talk about the awarding. You talk about the aftermath. And it definitely has a little bit of a rhythm. And and I'm going to apologize if some of these start to feel like they blend after a while. All right. The next one, uh, this was my second favorite episode. I I think what this guy did was amazing. This is uh, Joseph Vittori. And during a vicious nighttime battle in Korea, U.S. Marine Joe Vittori rotates between machine gun nests, making the enemy think it's facing a larger force. So there are four machine gun nests, and there's uh, a group of soldiers manning each nest, and this advancing Korean uh, battalion comes running up the hill and takes out most of them. But Joseph Vittori doesn't want to give them the idea that they're winning. He wants to continue to man each machine gun nest so as to simulate the idea that they're not hitting their targets and the, and the nests are fully manned. So he runs from nest to nest, fires off a couple of rounds, takes out some soldiers, runs to the next one, and does this repeatedly all night long until he's finally killed. This was yeah. amazing. Oh, yeah, and this, is, this reminds me a lot of... Um of the story of... Did you ever watch The Pacific? No. Okay, so maybe we'll put that one on, on our list for one of these one of these years upcoming, but one of the, the main gentlemen they talk about in The Pacific is John uh, Bassalone, who in Guadalcanal does something very similar, where he's just doing this, run from position to position, basically doing a one-man firefight. And and it's interesting, I don't... I Maybe have to rewatch the episode... And I don't know if what he did and the effect that it had on the enemy was necessarily planned or if he was literally in kind of a, in a reactive mode where he was like, I'm just fighting the guys who are in the next position. And I mean, I think when you talk about the mentality and, and how humans react to trauma when trained, 
often that's what kicks in, is that you go, you turn off your rational brain and what seems like a brilliant strategy is you reacting to it. And you saying, you know, your brain saying, okay, my next threat is here, we're gonna deal with that threat, and then the next one's here, we're gonna go back that way, and we're gonna continue to just deal with these, to use that line from The Martian, you keep solving problems until there's no more problems to solve. And that could have been one of these cases here. Um, so, what did you think of the episode overall? I thought it was really compelling. I think the, um, you know, I think the way that they portrayed the battle was really good. I think I, I was the, really sad when he got killed. Like it's, it was oh, one yeah, of those I where I know we're, we're doing history here and we have to be accurate. But like the the storyteller in me wanted him to live, and I felt I was very dissatisfied with the ending that like. It's down to like him and one other guy, and then that other guy watches him get shot. Yeah, and I mean, they, they had that gentleman still speaking, and, and I found that really affecting when you see somebody who who just know this other guy saved his life, and especially, I mean, we're going to see this in the next two episodes, but it's like, you know, he had theoretically made it, and then that last round comes in, and, and it, it catches him, and, you know, the, the cruelty and reality of war. Sure. Uh, the next one, Richard L. Etchberger. His radar station besieged by Vietnamese troops. Air Force Chief Master Sergeant Richard Etchberger is exposed to enemy fire while his comrades evacuate. All right, Andrew. I don't know how much you know about this, uh, but I'm going to put you on the spot here. These Air Force, uh, these Air Force soldiers were decommissioned on paper and made to be... Um, uh, civilian contractors because... Basically. Huh? Basically, yeah. Because the area that they were occupying with this radar station, which I think was part of neutral Laos, they didn't... Correct. They, they could not be soldiers because that was a violation of treaty. So instead, they're contractors, quote-unquote, at this radar station in Laos because that's what helped the, the, the local... Um, American forces in that area. So it was an important base and it served an important purpose. But can you talk a little bit about the details of uh, beyond what I've already said, if you can, why this group was de was in on paper decommissioned and made to be civilian contractors? Yeah, so this was um, so this was during the Vietnam War and, and as you said, they were stationed in Laos. Now Laos was immediately was immediately beside Vietnam and it straddled both the North and South Vietnamese border. And a lot of what that conflict was about at that time was was trying to cut off that supply line between between North and South Vietnam where the North was supplying their their forces, the Viet Cong or the North Vietnamese Army, depending on who you were dealing with, by way of what was called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Now, trail is probably a strong word here. <laughs> because what it was was really a network of small trails. A lot of what would happen was literally you'd have somebody take a $5 bicycle, take a couple of bamboo poles, and then strap five or 600 pounds of food, ammo, provisions, whatever you needed, and take it down across these really narrow jungle paths. The American solution to this was to send $30 million jet fighters after the, these guys. And they were very hard to pick out, and from what I understand, what this radar station was was something that was it was ground-based radar, and they were basically getting the the topography of Vietnam 
to try and locate the um, the actual trail so they could target them for for raids or for airstrikes or, or things along that line. I should also say that that and I'm not trying to be a moral equivalent here, but as much as people talk about the Vietnamese having or sorry the Americans going into Laos to to go fight the Vietnamese, the Vietnamese were already there too. So it was a matter of of kind of both sides playing fast and loose and I think some element of, of the Americans ended up leaving a much bigger footprint at the end of the day. Um, so this is the one where they they are pinned down against the uh, against the mountainside at this radar station, and they are calling for an evacuation. And he is continuing to pick off enemy combatants and cover his men as they escape to aircraft and uh, leave the base. Um, do, what else happened here? Do you do you recall? Well, I think as I remember, what ended up happening was that the two, the two, um, you know, he went down with, with two or three guys when the attack happened, basically went over the side of this cliff, held off at the bottom of the base because they had actually fully, um, the Vietnamese had actually managed to fully take over the uh, the base. They ended up, said it was so overrun, they just ended up calling in an airstrike on their position. Then they were able to get a... Um, uh, then they, they were able to get hold of a, a an Air America uh, uh, UH-1 Huey, a kind of your typical Vietnam helicopter. You know, it basically flies around and plays credence. If you're if you're ever wondering what it sounds like, <laughs> sorry, I, I had to. Um, they were able to call in. Um, he was able to. He basically stayed on the ground. Got his other two comrades out who were wounded. A third guy ran down. He put him the last. He put him as the last man on there. One thing I should probably say is that, as far as I understand, none of these guys were trained as as you know what you were kind of refer as as infantrymen. Uh, they weren't special forces or anything like yeah, they, that. Well, these they were air, air force. Jumpers. They were air force men, weren't they? They were, but I mean, like, there's elements of the air force who do know. Like, there are elements of the air force who who do base security, who are. If you've ever heard of a parajumper. Those mm-hmm. guys are basically a combination of, of paratrooper and medic, so they can, you know, they're they're considered part of special forces now. So there are definitely elements of, of the air force that do specialize in doing ground combat. I don't think any of these guys were that, so they were really hanging on by the skin of their teeth in a in a situation they weren't trained for. Mm-hmm. And you know, he made a point of of getting all of his guys out of there, getting get. And they were on the helicopter, and then, from what I understand, um, they took some final ground fire. It had been um, uh, Edgeberger had been wounded from the bottom of the helicopter and uh, and ended up bleeding out. Mm. Okay, yeah, I remember that now. So, what do you think yeah. of the episode overall? Um, my favorite part of the episode is early on, where the guy is on the grill making steaks. Yeah, <laughs> he's bitching at everybody. A, he's like, "Hey, and no one will, no one will answer." He's like, "How do you want your steaks?" And nobody says anything. He's like, "All right, medium, medium rare, and if you don't like it, tough shit." Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think this is maybe one of the ones that maybe blurred for me a little bit. I, I definitely remember the last, you know, the last ten minutes where him and his comrades are stuck on the side of the mountain, him getting them out. Um, I mean, this one. Because it's Vietnam, you know, they talked a lot to his, both his, his, 
his biological son and then his two stepsons about how much of a how much of an impact that did, that had on them and then also again talking about the the you know the nature of of the medal of honor that this one wasn't that because of how classified this was nobody could uh, or no one would award him with a with a medal of honor until obama did in 2010 mm-hmm all right, and our last one, we're back to Cobb Keating, the ever-attacked Cobb Keating. <laughs> Ty M. Carter, U.S. Army Specialist Ty Carter's bravery, while wounded and under fire, earns him the second Medal of Honor awarded for a Taliban attack in 2009. So once again, Cobb Keating, at the bottom of hell, is surrounded by Afghan forces, and they're all firing into the base, and one of his comrades get hit, gets hit, and he runs out into open fire, and he rescues the comrade, and he's able to patch him up and eventually run him to uh, a secure part of the base where they attempt to patch him up, and he unfortunately dies in transit. Um, but uh, that's what got him the Medal of Honor. But the thing about this episode, and the thing I, I want to talk about after you kind of give your thoughts on the battle itself, is there's a lot of talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. I know he doesn't like to use the word disorder, but as long as it's in the DSM-5, I'm going to use the word disorder. Um, but he, he talks about having been through combat, and having been traumatized, and um, going to counseling, and getting help. Uh, after a time, I think in the beginning he struggled and wrestled with his trauma and um, he was having great difficulties and I think his family encouraged him to pull himself out of it and so he sought counseling. I don't know if he got on meds or not, it doesn't really matter. Um, but post-traumatic stress disorder, whether the VA wants to admit it or not, is a very real thing and it happens not just for people in combat but you know, for people who have experienced abuse and suffering and violence uh, you know, and, and just because you're traumatized doesn't mean you're traumatized forever. Um, it takes some work. It takes some internal fortitude on your part to move through it and work with it. And that's one of the things he talks about. So he becomes an advocate for people suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I really like that as a mental health professional. I like that they spent a lot of time with, you know, with him sort of making this his second life, talking about the effects of trauma on combat soldiers and many other kinds of people uh, who've experienced a variety of traumas. Uh, we at, at my job, which is the county jail, we certainly deal, I mean, I would say most of what I'm dealing with is people who've been traumatized in some way. There's a lot of PTSD. So um, this really rang out to me and captured my interest. What did you think of the military portion of the episode? Well, I, I definitely agree with you. I think, I think this was a very positive discussion around um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Or, um, I'm trying to remember. They're trying to actually rename it right now into something slightly different. I want to say it's like a operational stress injury, which I, I think is a... Part of it is they're trying to destigmatize it on some level. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually what I what I liked about this episode was I think when you look at almost every other part of this, almost every other part of this episode with the exception of probably, um, I think it was 
Bertolo, like all the guys are profiling are very much like these are your your ideal soldiers. These are the guys who who are good soldiers. They're good leaders. They look after the other guys. They're well liked and everything like that. And they even say it in this episode, and and they say it in there. Ty Keating wasn't one of the guys in a lot of cases. He he was a former U.S. Marine. He didn't. I think he he held himself to a different standard from from some of the other guys he served with. He didn't. He was older than a lot of the other guys at uh, at Cop Keating. He didn't get along with them. He thought a lot of them were, were immature, and there was some friction there. I know even reading the book, it talked about, um, and they don't mention this a lot, but like he and the um, he and the sergeant that ends up getting stuck together in the in the Humvee near the end of the when his kind of Medal of Honor action. Those two guys had a series of issues together where they there were disciplinary issues with uh, that were trying to be addressed and things like that. So he wasn't your typical like poster boy for this sort of thing. But I mean, I think it also goes to show that, and I'm not you know judging his character in any way here, but it's like anyone at any time can go and and you know complete acts of incredible heroism. Absolutely. All right, well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of the eight-episode docuseries Medal of Honor. I'm going to give you the final word here, Andrew. Sum it up for me. Tell me what you what you liked, what you didn't like, good, bad, and the ugly. Um, again, I mean, I'm trying to think if I want to say anything else on, on Carter before we wrap up. I mean, again, you know, I think consistent with this series, um, they talk about, um, you know, they talk about the effects of the battle – one thing I will say that actually when you're watching this episode, um, they actually, so when the Taliban were out there, like, you know, make no mistake, you know, we regard them as a primitive, but they are sophisticated. They made sure they were video recording much of this battle. Like, there's a ton of footage that they actually found afterwards. And on some of these, you can actually see Ty Carter running back and forth trying to get ammunition to, to trucks and stuff like that. I mean, we probably should talk about the context of what happened is that um, basically, one of the primary defenses for this area were a number of armored Humvees with, with heavy weapons on top. And basically, what ended up happening was that he was his platoon's designation during the time of this battle was to run ammo to these points, and that was his job. He ended up, ended up getting stranded in one of these um, Humvees with a bunch of other guys. They tried to break out when one of their other um, one of their other comrades went down. And I apologize, I cannot remember the name of, of him right now. Three of those guys ended up getting killed when they tried to go for him. Eventually what ended up happening was they were able to get back in contact. He basically did a, a free run out to where that gentleman was, was able to get a radio, get, get back in contact, get organized enough to get a, an airstrike going so they could go and, and medevac him to the, to the, the base post. And it, what ended up happening there afterwards is, is a story unto itself, because the two or three medics they had in there basically ended up fighting for this guy's life for the next 12 hours. One of the things they ended up doing was they basically figured out how to do field transfusions, and because all these guys knew their... Um, all the guys who were available on base who they knew whose blood type was compatible or was like O-negative was basically being pulled off the line to go to a blood transfusion, then run back into the fight to try and keep this guy alive until they could cast a vacuum. Hmm. 
anyway, sorry, that was a quick digression on my part. Um, but, I mean, the series is really good. It tells some really interesting stories, I think. The other thing it also does, I think they, they try and bring it down to the very human level. I think, I want to say it was Antilac, and they were talking about somebody looking at his enlistment records and seeing, like, occupation was was listed as farmer. And I'll tell you this, like, I've done lookup of, of family military records. I had a bunch of family fight in the First World War, and it's like, they were all farmers, and, you know, there's that moment of connection there to say that, you know, here's this common point where where the difference between your ancestor and my ancestor and and maybe people we know who could be put in these situations and, and go through these experiences one way or the other is very real and it's very true, and, and I think... You know, this series is definitely focusing on that specific percent of very small number of soldiers who do these incredible actions of valor. But I think it does serve well to remind you of of the common experience of soldiers and the experience of war and and what people go through in this. And I think it's well worth watching as as kind of a reminder of that. Um, here's my only thought, and I have up the Wikipedia for the list of Medal of Honor recipients, which goes as far back as um, the American Civil War. Um, so you have the Civil War, the Indian Wars, the Korean Expedition, Spanish-American War, Samoan Civil War, Philippine Insurrection, the Boxer Rebellion, the occupation of Veracruz, the invasion and occupation of Haiti, the occupation of the Dominican Republic, World War One, occupation of Nicaragua, and then the ones that they do cover, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, uh, in Afghanistan, but nothing from Iraq, nothing from Somalia. And so my question to you, obviously they would not have gotten any footage uh, prior to World War One. but do you wish that, because I do, I wish that they had either added some episodes or maybe changed some of these out um, and added some other engagements and people from other engagements who won Medal of Honor. I just think it would have broadened the show a little bit. I felt like that's my one sort of um, criticism of the show is a lot of World War II. There's a lot of Afghanistan for eight episodes, and I would have liked to have seen something else. I would have liked to have seen an older engagement. I would have liked to have seen Iraq. I would have liked to have seen Somalia. Um, I think just, just perusing this list, I would have liked to have seen... Smedley Butler, who uh, won a, his second Medal of Honor for the invasion and occupation of Haiti. Why can't I learn more about Smedley Butler? Why, Andrew? I think, I think I'm in agreement with you on that one. I think there definitely could have been a little more broadening of, of what they talked about. I mean, I think it's interesting that... I mean, realistically, you probably could have... <coughs> pardon me... Uh, maybe compressed, just done a, a Battle of Cop Keating episode. Yeah. I, I, there's a lot of time. repetition in, with two episodes of the same place. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an incredible battle if you get a chance to read about it. Like, it'll, it, it's fairly, fairly um Can you recommend a book that. that encompasses the entire thing without having to read several different accounts? I haven't read The Outpost, which is what the movie is based on. Okay. I would say um, Red Platoon is perfectly good. That, that's okay. Ramache's account. They do talk quite a bit about about Ty Carter in it as well. 
you probably don't get as much of his perspective. I know also the book that um, the Outpost, which is read by uh, written by uh, CNN's Jake Tapper, also gets into a little bit of more of the big picture of it in terms of why they put this base here. Why was it a bad idea? Here's what the investigation of the aftermath came out. So. I haven't read it myself, but I understand that's maybe a little more wide-ranging. I would say, from what I've heard, both of those are perfectly acceptable. Yeah, I'm not really sure what the foresight and philosophy in putting a base at the bottom of a hole in the middle of Woody, Af- Woody Afghanistan, what we were going for here, but, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, but I- being in a hole where, where people can shoot down at you, I don't know if there's ever been an engagement that, where that worked well. Oh, exactly. And I mean, I think there's a couple of different things I'm I'm kind of thinking on this. Like, I mean, I think you're right. I think there needed to be something from the Iraq war. I mean, they even had, I mean, one of the gentlemen that they were speaking to on a regular basis. I, I'm going to look up his name right now because I'll recognize him in a heartbeat. Is it Smedley but, Butler? Uh, sorry? Is it Smedley Butler? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to need you to find something on Smedley Butler and then tell me about it, okay? Okay, fair enough. But I mean, yeah, you could have done First World War, I think. Um, Somalia, just so you know, like, Somalia was, um, that actually was covered in Black Hawk Down. Okay. Well, that might be why they didn't bother then. Exactly, because a lot of these have other stories associated with them. I mean, I think, again, World War One. you probably could have talked about. I think maybe what you get into, and, and this is me doing some, this is my, me not saying the reasoning is wrong or anything like that, but I kind of get the sense that when you talk about those earlier kind of pre-World War One conflicts, you get into some questionable discussion. Well, one, you sure. probably don't have a lot of good... Why did we kill an awful lot of minorities that day? And we're so well, proud yeah, of ourselves. Well, yeah, you get into kind of the colonial conflicts right. and some of the, the questions around that, so I think... But I think unless you're, you're an oversensitive snowflake type you can you have to be able if you're going to watch this you have to be able to contextualize you kind of have to accept that you know a hundred years ago the world was a very different place oh yeah but i mean i can just i can see they that discussion would probably take away from what they wanted to cover in the show itself fair enough and and, and you're right i think they do a very good job of showing valor Without a tremendous amount of overall context. I mean, they, at no point do they discuss the overarching philosophy of World War II. It's sort of accepted American myth now that the evil Axis powers of Germany, Italy, and Japan tried to take over the world, and the heroic Americans and British stopped them. I, yeah. I can't see it, but I'm making a jerking-off motion. Um, you know, I mean... It's American myth at this point. People accept it. That's the way they contextualize it now. Obviously, if you study World War II, it's a tad more complicated than all that. Um, and then I think I, 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 there might be a concerted effort on some people's parts to recontextualize Afghanistan, um, especially because, you know, even though Don Rumsfeld didn't want to attack because it had no good targets, that's where the Taliban was. That's where... Um, that's where the government of Afghanistan was allowing them to operate, and they're the people who attacked on 9-11. So people sort of readily accept um, comeuppance for Afghanistan 
more so than Iraq, which you ha which ha people have great difficulty contextualizing because it was you know the wrong enemy, it was the wrong war, that sort of thing, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, even right now, like I'm reading kind of the the Wikipedia for this, and there's actually been a, a Medal of Honor issued outside of or kind of we'll call it kind of post Iraq War. So for uh, uh, was it Sergeant First Class Thomas Paine for basically the fight against ISIS? Mm -hmm. okay. There's been a number of these. I think so. Iraq War. So out of out of the one, two, three, four, five. Out of the six. Uh, out of the six Iraq War uh, Medal of Honors, uh, five of them are posthumous. Mm. Okay. So I wonder if part of it is um, is is just sources. I think some of them are also. Um, let me also see. A lot of these were also in cases of of directly doing actions like like literally jumping on grenades or shielding shielding others from explosions. Which you want to talk about a singular moment of, of decision on what you're going to do? There it is. Yes. Uh, not every soldier is a hero and does brave things, but many of them are uh, beyond the pale. They are they are among the many heroes you know out there in the world, um, serving the public good. And I'm glad there's a show like this and many other shows that gives us a little window into that world. So it was an enjoyable experience. All right, uh, so that's our Veterans Day slash Remembrance Day show. We'll do another one next year. Uh, Andrew can hit me up and tell me what he's going to make me watch this time. Um, in the meantime, if you're interested in hearing more from Andrew, he will be joining me on another TV party December 1st. We're going to be talking about The Crown Season 4. You excited? I am, yes. Looking forward to that. Okay. All right. Um, you can check out Jesse and I uh, reviewing the new Striper album, Even the Devil Believes. Me and Chris Bailey reviewed AEW Full Gear, and me and Chris Sheehan reviewed Starman Volume 1, Sins of the Father. Uh, next week, we've got uh, Doom Patrol, Crawling from the Wreckage. Uh, Chris Sheehan picked that book because it's Chris Sheehan month, all month long on, in the month of November. And then myself and Jesse Starcher, instead of doing a Metal Hammer of Doom, I've co-opted him into talking Doom Patrol Season 2. And then we're finally up to my favorite chapter in the history of heavyweight boxing, Mike Frickin' Tyson. Oh boy. I am super excited for that show. Chapter 12, Mike Tyson, the history of heavyweight boxing. I can't wait. Uh, I know you've been enjoying the series, which I really appreciate. Robert's been enjoying it, and I've been having a lot of fun doing it. I've actually learned a lot and really have learned to appreciate the history of boxing. So I'm excited for that. Um, yeah, my, my instructor loves it too. So, I mean, good job, guys. Well, thank you. And thank your instructor for me. Speaking of your instructor, where do you work out these days? Well, <laughs> right now, we actually just got a brand new set of... We're basically being put into a two-week pause here in Alberta, so um, only online classes. Are you on lockdown? It's being called a pause, so it's, it's stuff like <laughs> indoor working out, 
Uh, so indoor sports and indoor workout classes, uh, bars and restaurants have to basically close by may, 10. May I invite you to renounce your Canadian citizenship and move to Florida where the COVID runs free? <laughs> as much as I appreciate that, um, you have far too many snakes and alligators and shit like that. So I'm going to say no, thank you. All right. Well, don't, don't say I never offered you anything. <laughs> I appreciate that. So... If you ever want to, uh, you know, escape the snakes and alligators, we still have some warm summer months up here, and then we have the Rocky Mountains. So there Stop you go. Moving to your Nazi country, we are shutting down every other week. Forget that. <laughs> oh no no no! Don't worry, we have we have uh, Ted Cruz's wider, more boring twin brother running the province right now. So <laughs> you were saying anyway. sir, before I rudely interrupted you. Okay, so anyway, so I, when it's open, I do train at uh, at uh, Havoc, uh, Steve Martial Arts and Havoc uh, JKD. Uh, you can find them on Facebook and uh, at, I believe at esteemmartialarts.com. Um, other than that, I think I'm going to end this one with a couple of probably I'm going to say book recommendations just on, on some of the topics we've talked about. So um, as we talked about, uh, Red Platoon by Clint Romache is really good. Um, Sebastian Younger's War, uh, in fact, I think he's also done another follow-up one called Tribe, which talks a lot more about um, about um, his uh, about kind of following up on, on some discussions around post-traumatic stress. He also has a follow-up documentary with some of the guys from the documentary called Restrepo, which which he reunites them and they do a a, a long walk to kind of deal with some of their issues around post-traumatic stress. Um, other than that, uh, another good one to read about if you're interested in some of the earlier conflicts, uh, Tim Cook's Secret Lives of Soldiers is really good as well. So anyway, uh, thank you very much. Um, and, you know, I think it's only appropriate that we say thank you to the men and women, whether you be soldiers or first responders, whether you be frontline or whether you be support staff. Thank you for your service. Thank you for all you've done for us to ensure that we can, you know, come on and, and do podcasts about silly things on a regular basis. But we truly do appreciate that, and, and we thank you for all of you uh, for everything you've done. Okay, uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. I want to thank you, Andrew, for uh, doing the show with me tonight. I thought we had a lovely conversation. I really enjoyed it, and thank you for getting me to watch something I wouldn't have normally watched on my own. So, uh, looking forward to doing this again, and looking forward to talking about the crown. Until then, for Andrew Graham, I'm Mark Rattledge. Be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>